Welcome to episode 11 of Social X, Humentum's monthly podcast. I am your host, Caitlin Holland. I'm the director of marketing and communications at Humentum. And I'm thrilled to be joined today by Tessie San Martin, who is the CEO of Plan International USA. Uh, she comes to us with a career of 30 plus years in the humanitarian and development sector, um, has, is a tireless advocate for girls and children, uh, and is frequently published and frequently speaks on various panels about uh, the subject of safeguarding and equality for women and girls. Um, New York Times, Washington Post, very well-known publications, as well as Humentum's own blog, um, where she's finished five blogs for us this year and I know is working on a sixth. Um, so we're going to cover just some of the great topics that she's written for us about, uh, spoken about in the past, and hear more about her career. Tessie, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, delighted to be here. Thank you. Uh, so it's always more interesting when someone gives their own background and kind of talks about their career progression from beginning to where they are today. Um, but I will say something I'm particularly interested in as a mother of two daughters myself um, is, is uh, when you landed kind of on the focus of advocating for girls and children, was that something that your personal life kind of helped inform and shape your real passion for that particular area? Um, or was that something that kind of just naturally progressed as you were focusing on, you know, economic empowerment and kind of gender equality in general before? So please tell us all about it. Wow, great question. I mean, look, in terms of my interest in international development in general, to tell you the truth, there's never been a time in my life where I don't recall being interested in the topic. And, you know, in, in terms of what is happening elsewhere, um, why, you know, how do you create, you know, more opportunities for advancement? And, and some of that may be, you know, my background. Um, you know, my, um, I was born in, in Cuba. My parents, you know, left what they, what they thought, you know, uh, was a repressive, uh, regime. And they let, they left with literally nothing to start all over again. And, um, and very fortunate to be in a country that is, you know, so generous and has so much. Uh, and, and perhaps in part, you know, because of that, um, I have always been interested in. So how do you get opportunities to those that don't have, you know, as much? Um, what are, you know, barriers to progress and, you know, how can, we ensure that, you know, every child to a certain extent has all the opportunities that, that, that so many of us, you know, have had, um, to really sort of fulfill their dreams and, and aspirations. And, and I know it sounds a little hokey, but anyway, that is, you know, what has always driven me. And I have to say, even when I was in high school, I was involved in, uh, pro, you know, in, in programs at community levels in Central America, um, which sounds really wild, but it's an organization that's still around called Amigos de las Americas. They're based in Houston. Um, and, um, and they give young people an opportunity to lead and get engaged in, you know, community development activities. And, and from there, I actually learned the fact that just because you're young doesn't mean that you don't have a lot to offer and that uh, you've got, you know, a, a lot to give. Um, I guess the other thing, cause you mentioned your, uh, you know, as, as a mother, yeah, I'm the mother of two girls. 
Um, and, um, and so the idea that, and, and, you know, and I kind of, I've lived what it is to not have role models, um, and be interested in things and say, well, but, but maybe that's really not for girls or, or, or women to be engaged in. Honestly, I wanted to be an astronaut, not a lot of role models for that. And look, instead I'm doing international development. And even, even then, honestly, women in leadership positions in our field, um, few and far between more now than when I started, but still, you know, most of the leadership is still not women. True. So true. Even in a in an industry or a sector where the majority of practitioners are women, yeah. <laughs> yes. At the very top, you see um, mostly men. Yep. Um, so safeguarding is a major initiative and kind of focus for the sector, the entire sector, but certainly Plan International, something you've talked and written a lot about. Um, what are some lessons learned that you can share when trying to embed this program into Plan? In terms of safeguarding, well, you know, it's it's interesting, right? Because um, you know, people ask me, well, you know, what's what's key for safeguarding? Is it a good, a strong internal audit um, system? Is it uh, really sort of good training? Is it good, um, you know, regulations? Uh, at the end of the day, uh, I think what really matters in a, an organization. Um, is the culture, right? And having a, a, a culture of transparency and inclusion in an organization, uh, a culture that makes it okay, that makes it safe, you know, for people to talk about, um, what has uh, happened and feel that they're, um, that they're going to be okay, you know, coming forward and no amount of training or regulation. I mean, all of that is important, but working on the cultural aspects of it, which are maybe a little bit more ephemeral and, and harder to, uh, to quantify, but but uh, it, it, it really is, you know, what matters uh, at the end of the day. Um, and I know that there are all kinds of, you know, because you can say, well, you know, transparency and inclusion, all of that is really important. But, you know, there are legal concerns why, you know, we can't um, say, say this, that or the other. And, and all of that is important. We shouldn't, uh, uh, you know, we need to keep that in mind, but it shouldn't be an excuse to not, uh, you know, not make it, uh, you know, sort of everybody's job in an organization to adhere to safeguarding standards. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you, you wrote in a recent Humanitarian blog about the global migration online, which is something that maybe was already, hap- was already happening in a way, but because of the pandemic, it has been just the speed with which that's been necessary um, and the, the gaps that's highlighted in inequality and kind of the concerns over digital poverty, um, you know, that affects everything. Uh, safeguarding efforts, certainly gender equality efforts, and you really highlighted the different opportunities and risks posed by this global migration online for girls and women. Can you, for anyone who didn't get to read that yet, could you talk a little bit about that um, here? Yeah, sure. Um, so absolutely read the blog. But um, uh, you know, a, a couple of things. One is, so, so you're right. There's been a huge migration online, 
Uh, but remember that there was a large gap or chasm that existed before in terms of those who have access to it and those who don't. And that piece hasn't been entirely addressed. And, and honestly, we see it here, right? When schools in New York close um, and all of the learning goes online and not every child is going to be able to keep up. Uh, because even here in the United States, not every child has access to um, the Internet or to uh, laptops, tablets and so on that enable them, you know, to keep up. And, um, you know, there was. And so so we need to deal with that gap. Um, and, and but then in addition, we need to deal with um, the fact that. If you've been less online, but now you're migrating more online, your ability to sort of to keep yourself safe, as it were, um, it is going to be less just simply by the fact that you haven't had an opportunity to be living online all the time. And what do I mean? So there was a survey, I guess, done in 2018 that really talked about the access that um, young people have. I forget, you know, I think it's ages, uh, what is it, like 15 to 19. The access, it, it kind of asked uh, children, I don't know how many countries, how, how often have you been online over the last three months, I think. And, um, and so what we see is that it really ranges, uh, from like 6% of those, uh, you know, 15 to 19 in Benin, uh, to 95%, uh, in the Nordic countries. Well, so, right. That's, a, that's, that's huge. And that's sort of the world we live in. Now, imagine if you're in Norway and you've kind of been living online all the time. You understand, you know, how to use it. So it's not, you know, and, and how, what to watch out for, you know, what are the things you should do? What are the things that you shouldn't do? If you're in uh, Nigeria or Benin, you know, where the proportion is much less, you haven't been. And so maybe you find yourself online now. And, and, and so do you know all of these things? What to be watching out for? How do you protect your own information, your own security? What should you expect and the like? And the reason I say that is because at the end of the day, you know, when it comes to safeguarding, there are, uh, you know, and we can talk about sort of what might be done to um, get more people online. But when it comes to, you know, if we start doing more programming to be available for remote delivery, um, what are the things that we need to make sure are happening to uh, safeguard uh, children and girls uh, in particular uh, that are, you know, that are migrating online? Um, and, and here I will refer to a recent report that Plan did in, in 2020, where we asked um, some, you know, 16,000 girls in, in, in a lot of countries, including the U.S., you know, what their experiences online had been. And what we found is that girls ex are much more likely than boys to experience online harassment. So they're facing additional risks just because they are girls. So what do we do with all of that? Um, I think, first of all, is a recognition that there are, you know, policy and regulatory uh, ways that we need to deal with this, that the social media platforms have responsibilities themselves in terms of how they're moderating content, what they're allowing, and that 
you know, we need to recognize that things like gender-based violence happen online just like they happen in actual reality. Just because it's virtual doesn't make it any less of a violation uh, than, uh, than, than if it were happening in real life. So, um, and, and that realization has to be made clear to policymakers and social media platforms that this is happening and there are things that they can and should be doing to protect. In addition to that, you know, uh, at, at the, you know, at the individual level, obviously there are things that one can do in terms of education, making sure that curricula uh, you know, that teachers that are preparing curricula to go online are including issues of safeguarding, uh, in, in their, you know, in their materials. Um, and so that's also, uh, really, you know, Im- important to do. Uh, and, and at the, you know, at the end of the, you know, at the end of the day, um, it is, about making sure that we're taking the same care and attention around safeguarding virtually than we do online. And one last thing I'll say is when it comes to designing our own programs uh, as uh, development implementers, as, as, the, as implementing partners to other donors, um, you know, so being able to do things virtually can be a huge plus. But as we're designing those programs, we need to be looking out for how are we protecting people's information, right? Uh, we've got a duty to do that. And if we're not equipped to do that, we're not watching out for that, we're going to be putting people uh, additionally at risk. How can we be using um, artificial intelligence, for example, uh, chatbots? to help screen out potential perpetrators. So there's a variety of things that all of us who are involved in program design need to be taking into account when that program design is about virtual programming. And again, just because we're working in a virtual world doesn't lessen our safeguarding responsibilities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So it sounds like, you know, it's more than just making sure more people have access to close the divide and address the digital poverty. It's really the education and the policies, which have a, you know, have a ways to go to catch up. Everything's moving so quickly. Yeah. And, 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 you know, one, one, one other thing I'll mention is because obviously we're all, and it goes back to your point about digital divide, which is so important. Um, I think, you know, we should also not forget that there are a variety of lower tech op- options that continue to be available. Okay. Radio is, you know, pretty much available everywhere. Um, it's sexier to maybe develop an app that's going to help you do something cool and that may attract a donor's eye. But for last mile delivery in so many places, thinking about how we deliver some of the programming, messaging, education, pedagogy through uh, things as low tech as radio uh, become hugely important and we shouldn't forget about them. Yeah, yeah. And you brought up donors. That's a really interesting point. I mean, do you think, how much do you think donors are helping drive making sure that when programs involve a certain online digital component, that security is part of that? Or are they more kind of just attracted to, oh, this seems like the latest technology you could possibly use for this program, you know, full force ahead? Uh, yeah. are, they, are, they, are they partners in helping with the security aspect of programming when it's online? Yeah, I think, look, we're all learning together, 
right? I mean, this has been a pretty drastic move that has happened quite suddenly, right? The world stopped in March and we all had to adapt. Um, but it's, but, but in general, I think, um, you know, donors are certainly, you know, uh, USAID, I think it, it, they even, you know, issued that before the whole COVID thing, their sort of their IT, you know, their technology strategy, um, was very cognizant of the fact that this is not just about, you know, a cool app, but really about, you know, the entire environment in which that is implemented and making sure, um, and that's not just about, you know, interconnectivity at the, between telecoms and so on, that there's a whole sort of policy regulatory and indeed, you know, safeguarding environment, uh, that is important to be, uh, to be paying attention to. But at the end of the day, um, I think, uh, and so that's very helpful in terms of getting, you know, uh, a, a lot of the community to pay attention. I think, uh, all of us who are involved in, in safeguarding also have a duty to continue to, you know, advocate for these issues and, and push and, and be observant in terms of, you know, what is being done and call out best practices and call out when they're not best practices. And, and that would apply to us. If anybody sees things that we're doing that are not right, I hope that we can all help each other learn here because there is a ton to learn and very little time to, to do so. Yeah, it has to be a collective effort. Uh, shifting gears a little bit, you did mention a, a survey that um, or some research that Plan had done. And there's there's another report I want to talk about. Hopefully I don't misquote the findings at all. But in 2018, Plan conducted some research and 50%, so about half of the girls surveyed said they don't have, and this also harkens back to what you were saying about wanting to be an astronaut not having a ton of role models in that field of women. Um, but 50% didn't have role models, period, uh, famous in their lives otherwise. Um for what they wanted to do or kind of for their lives. And so that that stuck out to me, especially right now in, in the U.S. specifically, we have um, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, first first woman, first woman of color um, that's going to be assuming that role, which, is, which means so much in so many ways. I think representation is obviously one way that you help see progress uh, for girls and young women globally, but what else besides representation is is something you think is key to making sure that that um, that divide can be closed when it comes to women reaching their goals? Yeah, uh, I, and you point out yes, that's the survey of U.S. Um, adolescents that we had, and actually in that same survey, uh, we asked them to um, I think name a famous woman that they look up to. And uh, 44% of the girls and I think 60 something percent of the boys said that they were unaware of any female role model that they could point to. <laughs> it's like, wow. All right. That's, that's interesting. But it also points right uh, out to the, the power of media, um, the power of, um, of, of your own sort of parents, of your family, of significant others, you know, teachers. Um, and, 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 and so how all of that shapes the perceptions of young people. One of the most interesting things in that survey to me is that, um, the, the views, because it was a survey of, uh, U.S. adolescents and we were asking them their attitudes about gender equality. And 
I was expecting young people's attitudes about gender equality to somehow be more enlightened than older people's, right? Uh, in part because, to your point, they're more role models, right? Aren't, you know, aren't we making progress? Well, it turns out that young people's attitudes towards gender equality um, uh, are just as conservative as those of adults. They don't change very much. And the reason is because where are young people getting their cues from the adults in their lives, from their coaches, from their teachers, from the from their parents, from the media, that whole milieu, everything is reinforcing norms, right, about what girls can do, what women can aspire to. And it's just a constant reinforcement. So changing that over time is more than just a law or a regulation. I mean, look, we have had you know, um, equal pay laws in the books for decades. It hasn't changed very much at the end of the day. Um, so it's more than just laws or regulations, um, or, you know, having the U.S. women's, uh, you know, soccer team win the World Cup. I mean, it's, it's more than just events, um, or things that are written is about changing the conversations that we're having with young people, that young people are having with themselves um, and, and sort of raising that awareness that, you know, uh, gender norms are truly deeply embedded and are potential obstacles, right, for girls and boys uh, to be able and, and willing to dream beyond the current constraints. And I say boys because... The other thing that comes out of that survey is that, um, you know, there is an expectation that's very clear from the survey responses that boys should be aggressive, that they need to be strong. I mean, those are expectations that bind boys to certain ways of acting, whether that's the way they want to act or not. So we're all sort of prisoners of our own constructs and the the this starts to change when we're willing to have conversations that question uh those constructs and and um and I think one of the things that we've seen with young people here in this country and and around the world is an increasing number of young people that are that are willing to that that are willing and are engaging in hard conversations about their own reality and what's right and what isn't uh, and are taking leadership on important issues from climate change to gun control. Yeah, um, it's, it's it's so. I mean, you do think it's gotten better, right? And in the media and the stories, the narrative, and everything seems like it's progressed. But what you said about it being so ingrained, some of these just gender norms are kind of just the default, like assuming that the default is as a man's role or something. Even if if you know that women are in the role, you know you know you know that there is female doctors and incredibly accomplished female athletes and everything else. It's still like a doctor walks in the room. You might be surprised, especially in certain practices, you might be surprised it's a woman, right? Um, exactly. This is a small example. Or I mean, my sister and I were talking the other day. She's also a mother of young children. And she's like, why do I always make Daniel's toys for son? Why do I always make Daniel's toys boys? She's like, why is it always him? Like Mr. Elephant? Like what? She's like, I hate that, that, that I realized I'm doing that and I'm not doing it anymore. But it's like, they're just maybe because he's a boy, but it's like, some of them need to be girls, just like in real life. It's so. true. It's true. You know, when I, when I was traveling more and I, I was traveling with my kids, um, 
every time that that the pilot came on the on the loudspeaker and it was uh, a woman, I would I would point out to whoever was sitting next to me, it's it's a woman, you know, and and my daughters were going, well, why do you keep on pointing that out? I'm going because it's unusual, and I want you to notice it's a woman, and that's yeah. and and that's okay now. <laughs> Maybe it's a good thing that you didn't think it was unusual. <laughs> <laughs> but you need to point it, but you need to point it out, right? You need to point it out. Definitely. Well, Plan is certainly doing their part. Um, the massive campaign Girl Engage, I know it's a girl-centered initiative, girl-driven in all aspects of the work, trying to make Plan that way through Girl Engage. Can you talk a little bit more about that campaign? Uh, yes. So, so Girl Engage is not the campaign. Um, uh, but it is the way that we do programming in plan and, and the campaign is about transforming, um, these gender norms, right? So what we want to do is we, we aspire to transformative change, right? We aspire to programming that does more than just make, um, you know, improvements, uh, it, you know, it, it, for example, you know, yes, getting access to water or getting access to primary education, that's all very important. But if we, again, don't question sort of norms that are driving behaviors, it, they may be short-lived, which is why plans programming really tries to get underneath what is driving some of the some of the behaviors and the beliefs and 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 a lot of it is centered around uh gender norms and the key um insight i i guess for me anyway as in in terms of the girl engaged programming is that what we want is not to make sure um that uh girls or young people have have a seat at the table we want them to be leading in those conversations at, at the table, right? That, that, that leadership and, and voice matters. And we work very hard to, I think, you know, our approach is to create safe spaces for, uh, for girls, uh, for young women to lead, to, uh, to have that voice. Because it's not me giving you your voice. My, your voice is not mine to give, but it's recognizing that sometimes, you know, taking those leadership roles, being able and willing, uh, to, uh, speak out, um, having, uh, people that listen, none of those things are to be taken for granted. So creating that space for, for girls to lead and, and to lead in every aspect of programming from how programs are designed to how programs are executed to how programs are evaluated along that whole uh, value chain. And what we found that, what we found out with the, with the programs that are using um, this approach is that it does lead to better designs. Um, uh, we, we had a program, we have a program in, in Zimbabwe, for example, that was supposed to be tackling uh, the reasons why girls uh, can't go to school. And all I will say now, not to bore you with all the details, is if, if, the, if the girls weren't leading on the design process and we were listening to our experts, <laughs> um, we would have ended up with a design that wouldn't have actually been addressing 
uh, the key reasons why the girls were not going and staying in school. Uh, it would have, it would, it would have addressed the symptoms, but not some of the underlying causes. But since you had their direct input, it was clear what was happening. Much clearer. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. So it's more of an internal campaign of how you program. Um, yes. Than the external campaign. But I'm sure that externally, there's a lot of lessons that could be learned by other organizations. Well, and, 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 and that's why then the monitoring and evaluation becomes very important because you have to be able, at the end of the day, to demonstrate results. We think this is a better way to program. Now we have to demonstrate that it is a better way to program. Some of it is immediately apparent. Um, some of it will be apparent over time because I do think that some of the more profound um, impacts are things that we see over time in terms of what's sustainable over time. So, Tessie, you recently spoke on a panel at SID's virtual conference this year. I was also, I also attended that at Society for International Development, Washington. And you were speaking about the SDG goals, Sustainable Development Goals, uh, and specifically around looking at Goal 5, which is kind of your focus, the gender equality. Um, what are some steps that you think can be taken right now to try and ensure that this, this divide is closed in the next decade? Wow. Well, I'll tell you what, I am very, <laughs> in two minutes or less, um, I am very concerned uh, about not being able to reach any of the SDGs in the next decade, right? One of the things that we know as a result of COVID is that we are experiencing a giant rollback, right? Um, if you consider that, uh, you know, the, uh, what is it? The number of people, uh, living un in under a dollar 90 a day, that that number of people is something like 30, almost 40 million or more today are living under $1.90 a day than was the case, you know, eight months ago. And, and the world had been making steady progress in terms of the number of getting more people out of that extreme poverty level. And, and by the way, the largest proportion of the most impoverished are women and girls. So um, that's just a, a huge setback. Another, you know, huge setback, uh, the fact that, you know, we have um, seven, what is it, 750 million girls out of school or that have been out of school. We know from um, what we saw during the Ebola uh, epidemic when schools closed, when they reopened, the proportion of girls that returned to school is less than the proportion of boys that return to school for many reasons, including the fact that during this time, girls are not are, are going to be less likely to be able to access. We were talking about earlier, you know, implements, phones, cellulars, laptop, anything that can allow them to retain their ability to keep up with the work. Um, they're also the ones that are more likely to be the caregivers if anybody in their family gets sick. There are also, if families are under a huge amount of stress, um, one way that the parents see of protecting their girls is to get them married early so that they can be somebody else's responsibility. So the number of girls that are married young increases a lot. The number of girls that get pregnant increases a lot. All of that prevents girls from returning to school. And I could go on. The point is that 
our ability to reach SDG 5 goals in 10 years, in my opinion, is um, hugely, hugely at risk. Uh, and so the question becomes, well, what can we do about it? I guess the first thing that we can do about it is do just that, measure, right? So that we understand the nature of the setback and can then begin to develop uh, program approaches that are uh, constructed deliberately to, uh, to address that, knowing that girls are going to have less access to mobile telephony. What other ways do we have of keeping girls in touch with their lesson? What specific messaging or work do we need to be doing at the community level or with parents? So these things are, you know, they're, they're gigantic challenges. Um, I, I don't think they're hugely insurmountable. Um, what, what is true is that we, if we pretend that nothing much has happened and we can get back to normal soon, uh, then we will lose a lot of time. So it's, we, we need to begin to, um, act right, right now. So we need, uh, responses from major bilateral donors like the U.S. government and, and other donors that, that have programming to not just protect against the spread of the virus, but to acknowledge the specific risks uh, that girls are facing and, and begin to address that. Yeah. Um, and specifically around the people. So I'm going to, the last, in closing, the last couple of things I want to talk about are the people working towards the sustainable development goals, kind of the development, humanitarian and development sector. Um, and a lot of it you, you kind of touched on already. So the, First question, I mean, what more can we be doing in the global development space to reduce barriers to women's leadership um, so that some of that kind of expertise and direct knowledge you kind of were alluding to and talking about the way that Planet does their programming, that that is seen more typically and that there's high representation at the top for people doing this important work? Yeah, great question. Um, so I, I do think that um, organizations like mine need to take a long look in the mirror and consider whether the ways that we've been operating uh, before COVID continue to be relevant, you know, today. Uh, and, uh, and among the things that we need to consider is whether, to your point, we have the type of diverse, uh, inclusive leadership and culture in our organizations uh, that is necessary uh, to not just sort of retain our credibility and, and relevance, but to continue to be able to deliver impact. Um, and and I, you know, I I I think we need to. Uh, examine our own implicit biases in the way that we design, uh, in technical assistance, in monitoring and evaluation. Um, all of that, in my opinion, represent, you know, giant, uh, blind spots, uh, in, in our organizations. We need to change how we do things. And, and I talked in, you, you mentioned the, the panel at, at Sid Washington. I did talk in that panel about the, the approach that we've been taking at Plan, 
where we've, we've really sort of implemented a pretty expansive uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative that is aiming to take a look at all the ways that we do work from our operations and our recruiting and our staffing to how we do business development to how we do programming, all with a diversity, equity, and inclusion lens because we acknowledge that we are not where we need to be in terms of of, of having those approaches that are bringing the best uh, uh, of what is uh, in our organizations and in the in the communities where we work to bring the best to every programming, and that's urgent. I, I guess I will also say one other thing. If there's one thing we learned during the COVID response, um, is that what really mattered were local organizations, right? Because when none of us could move around, when we we went into lockdown, and in many places we're back in lockdown, uh, when we went into lockdown and we couldn't move, even our teams in Kampala or Nairobi, you know, uh, or Hanoi, they couldn't move out of the capital. What made it possible to deliver um, needed uh, uh, relief and assistance and programming were the local organizations on the ground. And I tell you, our community has been working about, has been working and talking about local ownership forever. And it's time to really start walking the talk. What are we each doing? And are we doing all we can do to strengthen local partners? Because the name of the game is local entities across the board, in my opinion. Yeah, the localization conversations really take a new shape in light of COVID and the pandemic, for sure. Um, so something you're touching on so much that we're, we're exploring in our OPEX 365, you mentioned this virtual kind of year of learning where we're having these weekly solution sessions. We're having three retreats that span over the next year. And just wrapped the first one, in fact. And the main the main focus of the first one was really what are the new ways of work we need to embrace, and also what can we leave behind? Like what is no longer serving us uh, in the world? And so, is there anything you want to add to kind of what you just said? That was, I mean, that was great. But about what we can leave behind in addition to what we need to embrace moving forward. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, great question. I mean, in general, and we're, and we're having the same conversation. And I think so many of us are. And part of what we need to leave behind is our attachment to how we've been doing things <laughs> to date. Um, and, and I, and I get that that's hard because that's safe. And, and, um, until you really know what, you know, and, and are, are we ready to let go of how we've been doing things and how we've been operating if we're not entirely sure what we're driving to? But we need to let go because whatever got us to where we are now, in my opinion, is not going to get us to where we need to go because, and, and we, we all know this intellectually, right? Uh, and it's great that there are these vaccines out there and, you know, we're eventually going to get them out to, everyone around the world uh, we need to uh, to keep everyone safe um, but uh, it, wherever we get to after that is not going to be to where we were in March never D- that's gone so we need to let go of existing constructs and approaches and operational models and be willing and able to embrace something new as scary as that is, and I don't have the answer, 
And I'm not pretending that I'm without trepidation, but I think it's what we need to do. Completely agree. Um, and yeah, great answer. Thank you so much, Jesse. I think that's all. I know that your time is uh, limited and I, I'm so appreciative that you were able to talk to us today on the podcast. I'm delighted. Thank you for the opportunity. It was a, well, I mean, really hard questions. I really appreciate them. <laughs> um, to our listeners, uh, thank you for tuning in. You can find this episode on YouTube and also anywhere you listen to podcasts. So now Social X is featured on Amazon Music, Spotify, iTunes. So make sure you find this episode there and also subscribe for future episodes. Thanks again, Tessie.